Turn this morning, if you would, to the third chapter here in the book of Ephesians. And remember that the first one-third, the first three chapters in the book of Ephesians is largely doctrinal. It, it establishes sound doctrine. And so the third chapter, we're going to break into two parts. It's a rather lengthy explanation of something extremely important. That the mystery of salvation was explained, and as we saw last time, it bridges uh, across generational gaps and across racial gaps and across socioeconomic gaps. It does all those things. But now Paul is going to go on to explain this incredible mystery that's going to be his life. Now most of us, in a human sense, treat most things somewhat the same. If we're looking for somebody to send into a specific skill set or a gifting, you pick somebody who already has experience, right? Isn't that what we normally do? We look at somebody and we say, okay, well, do you have a degree in that? And how much experience do you have? And you know, how many people have you actually helped with that thing? You see, from a human perspective, we always, just like the children of Israel, in selecting their king, are looking for the tallest dude with the broadest shoulders. Amen? God doesn't work that way. And so he delights to use those silly, those foolish things to confound the wise. And as nothing is a better picture of that than the life of the Apostle Paul. Because the life of the Apostle Paul, from a perfect standpoint, if you just looked at his life, he was a super Hebrew. If he had been on the Avengers, it, like SH on his chest, his power would be the law. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He actually said of himself that with regard to the law, I was faultless. That's a guy who had Judaism down, amen? So as human beings in our world, what we would do is we would select Paul to go minister to Hebrew people, Amen? He's perfect. He knows everything there is about being a Hebrew. And so we would send him there. So what does God do? He sends him to the Gentiles. I love the fact that God sends Paul, a Hebrew of the highest order, to minister the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the very people whom he was persecuting and seeking to kill. That's a God work. That's how God works in our lives. It's such a beautiful picture of his grace being poured out. And so would you pray as we continue here, we'll take the first 13 verses here in chapter 3. Father, we're so grateful. Lord, thanks for all the blessings today. God, thank you for these people, their patience to come and hear and to listen, to study your word. Pray that you would take this time now and just use it for your amazing, wonderful, and glorious purposes. As we study, would you bless us with your presence here in this place, Lord, by your spirit. Instruct us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, it says here in chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians, for this reason. So he's giving us an indication of what's coming next. It's looking back, I believe, really on all that's been said thus far in the letter, but very specifically back to chapter 2, where he's laid out these wonderful doctrinal principles. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of, notice this, it doesn't say the prisoner of Rome. It doesn't say the prisoner of some really bad people who were in leadership. It doesn't say the prisoner of, you know, some, some guys who plotted against me. It says the prisoner of Christ Jesus, and then he gives the purpose for you Gentiles. He is a Hebrew. He is imprisoned because of his stance for Christ, and it's towards those people whom he formerly persecuted. 
And God's amazing wisdom in this, think about it for a second. If Paul had gone and ministered to the Jewish people, he would have been persecuted endlessly, amen? Because he, was, he would have been seen as a turncoat. He, he would have been viewed as someone who was a traitor. He would have had very little impact in the Hebrew community because they would have just simply said, he's lost it, he's gone off the reservation, he went the wrong way. And so God uses that, our own human nature, to say, look, I'm going to send you to people who don't know you. I'm going to send you to people that you don't have any rapport one way or another with. And so Paul, as we know, was jailed at least four times. He was there in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. We find him there in a jail. Uh, He was jailed at Caesarea, and I believe that this is speaking specifically of Caesarea Maritima, which is on the coast. It's north north of Jerusalem, north of Uh, Tel Aviv. It's there on the coastal region. It's a city that Herod uh, developed. There's also another Caesarea in northern Israel, uh, very near the border with Syria. That's the source of the River Jordan there at at Banyas. But he was imprisoned there at Caesarea Maritima. He was imprisoned in a rented house in Rome. You can see that in Acts chapter 28. And then finally where he would lose his life in the Mamertine prison in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And so Paul was in prison fairly frequently during his time of ministry in the Lord. And he was in prison for the same reason each time. He preached Christ crucified. He just simply was sharing the gospel. And the gospel got him in trouble. Can I tell you this morning that if you actually preach the gospel, you're probably going to get in trouble. You're going to get in trouble with friends. You're going to get in trouble with family. You may get in trouble at work. And again, be a great employee, but... When you preach Christ, it changes people's lives. And all of a sudden, the sinning that they used to do, they don't feel comfortable doing that anymore. And they're like, oh man, I can't believe it. Now I don't have any fun because, you know, Jeff came and told me about Jesus and now I can't sin with impunity anymore. (laughs) You're going to get in trouble for sharing the real gospel because the real gospel is going to transform hearts, lives, and minds. Paul got in trouble. A Jewish antagonist in his life. He was a prisoner because of that heavenly portfolio of blessing that he was trying to share with everybody. And so, realistically, he was trusting God's will in all of this. You see, when you share Christ, you have to trust that God is going to do something with it. Because it's not your, your powerful powers of persuasion. Amen? If you can talk someone into being a Christian, then someone else can talk them out. Your job is simply to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not to provide such an argument that they just can't do anything else but come to Jesus. And so Paul is is saying, look, I'm just going to trust this to the Lord. And it got him in trouble. There are times when you trust your life to the Lord that you're going to go through some suffering. You're going to go through some pain. You're actually going to have some things come into your life that you would not otherwise have, and they're going to be negative. It's always interesting, you know, we're, we're real close to, to closing escrow on our house. And, you know, when you do those kind of things in the world, it's to your benefit to lie, isn't it? Well, I make $8 million a year, of course. I can qualify for six of these, you know, and, and they give you a loan. We know the, prime, the, the subprime mortgage fiasco actually happened from that. People not telling the truth about their income and not verifying those things. You you see, the world rewards you for not telling the truth. 
But if you tell the truth about the gospel, I guarantee you there's going to come times when you're not going to get that loan. You're not going to get the car loan. You're going to lose perhaps even a position at work. You're going to have to say, look, I can't do that in all my good consciousness before Christ. I am no longer like that. I cannot do those things. And because I can't do them, you're not going to get that promotion. You're not going to go out and be able to lie to people about the greatness of the product. You're not going to be able to go out and and convince people to buy something that they shouldn't buy that they don't need. So guess what? Your sales are going to plummet. Amen? When you tell the truth about Jesus, you gain the one thing that the world needs. You gain knowledge of the Most High God. And you gain salvation in the only name that can bring salvation. That was Paul's place. He just trusted God with him. He simply gave him the words that he was going to speak and said, God, use these things. And when you can figure those things out, you, you have an opportunity to share things with people that to this day are a mystery. The world looks at the body of Christ, looks at us, and when we share the gospel, they're like, oh, these guys have been doing the same. It's getting monotonous. It's the same story for 2,000 years. The same story is still transforming lives 2,000 years later. Amen? So we, yeah, amen. We don't need to change the story. We just need to preach the gospel. We need to let people come to Jesus, so to speak, not come to church. Do you hear what I just said? We need to have people come to Jesus, not just come to church. You want them to come to a church who shows them the real Jesus. We'll do that here. But church doesn't save people. Jesus saves people. Amen? Amen. You see, in that regard, everything has its purpose. Verse 2, it says, If indeed you've heard of the dispensation of grace, the grace of God, which is given to me for you. Now remember, to a Jew for the Gentiles. How that with by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I've already written these things. He's saying, look, I I have a message. God gave me that message. God has a purpose for your life. God has a purpose for my life. God has a purpose for this church. And this word that's translated dispensation is normally a a household economy. It's understanding the the Greek word um, is oikonomia there. And when you look at that, it, it means that you govern God's household. And as children of God... Everything in the world is God's household. We don't own anything. You may think you own your house. Actually, the bank theoretically owns your house, generally speaking. But it actually isn't even yours if it's paid for. It's still God's. The cash in your checking account belongs to the Lord. The brain in your head is his to use for his purposes. Your voice, your hands. I always like to tell everybody, you're just simply the feet, the hands, the mouth, the mind, the pocketbook of the Lord Jesus. That's who you are as the body of Christ. I am no longer my own. I have been bought and paid for with a price, Scripture reminds us. And that life that I now live, I live to please Him. I'm a steward. My life is to be used for His glory. And Paul says, look, this is a mystery. 
doesn't make any sense. I grew up in a Hebrew home. I went to Hebrew school. I'm actually a Hebrew pastor, if you want to look at it that way. He was a leader in the synagogue. He was then a, a Jewish attorney. He was in the Sanhedrin, deciding the weightier matters of the law. You would think, well, let's send him to the Hebrews. And God, because he was a tool in God's toolbox, he sends to the Gentiles. He says, look, go minister to them. That, brothers and sisters, is a mystery. But Paul viewed himself exactly how we all need to see ourselves, and that is God wants to use us in a, in a way that maybe we don't know. God may send you someplace that you don't understand. We have a team leaving this week for India. Now, probably most of you, that's not something that's on your near horizon. But maybe if you actually ask the Lord, Lord, I'm in your toolbox, take me out of your toolbox and send me where you want me to go, he might actually send you to someplace like India. <coughs> He may send you to Africa. He might send you to South America. Maybe he's going to take you out of it. You're his. And you are here to do his bidding. You are actually a bond slave in that sense. He owns you. You're to go do what he tells you to do. Paul said, look, all these things are working out for that purpose and that purpose alone. And he makes it very clear, verse 4, by which when you read that you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. He's saying, look, I don't understand everything, but I know this. The only thing that matters in my life is Christ in me, because that is my hope of glory. Amen? That's what the book of Colossians tells us. You see, that mystery is God's plan that he's had, remember what we saw? Since the foundation of the world. You're not a mistake. You're not an accident. Your family is not a mistake. Your family is not an accident. No matter what life circumstances you've gone through, if you got here this morning and you walked here and your life is falling apart from a human standpoint, God loves you. And God has a plan for your life. It seems like a mystery when we're going through those difficult times. It's like, how could he use me? Look, I, I, I grew up in a very dysfunctional family, and the fact that God could use me, that I'm not in some kind of a home someplace for people whose brains are gone, is purely a miracle. I'm a contractor by trade. I'm a pastor by choice and calling. God wanted to do something with me that I wasn't on the path to do in and of myself. I wanted to go to medical school. How I went from medical school to building things all over the world, I don't know. But from there to here, that's God doing what God wants to do. He makes those things clear to us. He says, look, just go out and do what I ask you to do. Notice verse 5. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. In other words, the Old Testament in those times... Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their families, the 12 tribes of Israel, didn't get the whole picture because it wasn't revealed totally to them. But they got a lot of the picture. Read the book of Isaiah and you'll see that. Read the book of Zechariah, you'll see that. The prophetic word to the people in the Old Testament times was, look, it's the same thing, same character, same nature of God. But it was mysterious. And just as D.L. Moody said, that which was concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Things that weren't totally clear. It's really clear now that we're saved by grace and through faith. You see, we, we live those lives by the Spirit's work. 
You see, we actually are supposed to be bound together. Notice verse 6 that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. Can you imagine a Jewish man saying that about the Gentiles? Because the Jewish people believed that they were unique on all the earth, and they actually were, that they understood things about God that they alone understood. That was actually true, that they alone had the temple, they alone had the sacrifices, they alone had the feast days. And so here Paul, a member of the religious elite of the Jewish people, is saying, look, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. The gospel did that. You see how that reads? Through the gospel, these completely divergent groups of people who are on opposite ends of the spectrum were brought together in Christ. That's what Jesus does. That's how we get together. And so he says, really what he's getting at is, look, you're putting us together by making us joint heirs. You're putting us together by making us members of the same body. You're putting us together by making us sharers in the things of God. When you get to heaven... I always laugh because, you know, kids have wonderful views of heaven. And they always have these things, well, like, you know, he or she, when they get there, they're going to have, you know, they're going to have, like, a really bad house in a bad neighborhood or something. It's like when we get there, all of a sudden there's going to be all these little differences that we have here on earth. No way on this planet is that going to be the case. When we get to heaven, we're going to be joint heirs with Christ Jesus. We're going to be sharers in the wonderful things of the gospel. We're going to be in his presence and in the fullness of joy. There's not going to be a bunch of schisms and, you know, we're not going to, well, you know, they live in East Heaven. <laughs> They're on the other side of the Golden Street. It's not happening. We're together. Let's be together now. It's the way it's going to be for eternity, amen? You probably want to start practicing that. We're supposed to be together. We're supposed to feel together. And if God could unite the Jews and the Gentiles, if he could bring them together, he can unite anybody over any type of thing, any position. doesn't matter what it is. He goes on in verse 7, of which I became minister according to the gift of grace that God has given to me for the effective working of his power. You see, it's God's power working in you. If we had to come up with a plan, can you imagine... Notice, one of the reasons that I shared with you how many divergent answers we got on the backs of cards, we did not even ask for that, by the way. I don't recall that, you know, please put comments on the back of the card. I didn't say that, I don't think. Gives you an idea of the power of people's differences, doesn't it? Well, it's, now it's my time, all right? This, <laughs> Pastor Jeff's going to really read this, you know. Scribbling it out. There was a couple of them, exclamation point, exclamation point. There were some of them smiley face, little emocons on there. A <laughs> couple of them, I hope you die and don't come back. <laughs> Deadly serious. There's two curses. I don't care. I'm in Christ's hands. I'm here as long as Jesus wants me here. My point is, it's his power. If this was about me getting a job, shame on us. Because this is not a job, this is a calling. Amen? That's by Christ's power. That's not, you know, you fill out an application. Look, Jesus wouldn't have got hired either, okay? He wouldn't. Well, he wears crummy clothes. 
You know, he speaks Galilean. I mean, come on, can he speak the king's English? You ever thought about that? Jesus comes and applies for pastor of the church. He's not going to get hired. He hangs out with bums. The dude was homeless. Think about it. He was broke. How many churches in America? Pastor came in, well, you know, don't have a place to lay my head. You're out of here. You see, it's by his power. And it gives us God-sized opportunities when it's by his power. If it's your power, then you only get you-sized opportunities. That's it. You want God-sized opportunities. God-sized opportunities can only be met with God-sized resources. His power. And that is a true mystery. It's a mystery for me, I can tell you that. You you see, he goes on now in verse 8. Look what he says. He says to me, who am less than the least of all the saints. Now think, this is the Apostle Paul. He's responsive for a, responsible for a huge part of the New Testament. He is not only just knowledgeable in all things Hebrew, he is the one who lays out the doctrine of being saved by grace and through faith. He's the one who says the just shall live by faith. He's the one that says there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's the one who says all things work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to it. He's the guy that wrote that stuff, okay, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Imagine if he says, I am the least of all the saints. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. How much more so do you think we ought to be in exactly that place? And that's why he says, verse 9, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. He's drawing us together. The the Greek word there is koinonia. It's to come together and, and to be together as family. The fellowship of the mystery from which is the beginning of all the ages. It's been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. He says, look, there's, there's one central mystery in all this. Jesus is the answer. And we're all in him. There's not a different savior for a different group of people. And there are churches that preach that. And it's wrong. There's one Christ. There's one Lord. We're going to see that in chapter 4. You see, what he's really saying is we need to kind of keep it simple. Because we have a tendency to make things complex, don't we? If you don't understand the complexity of the human capacity to mess things up, all you've got to do is look at religion in general. Think about it. How many schisms exist in the world because of people who claim to follow the same Jesus hating on each other? Think about it. How many of the world's issues have come forth from people who are masters of their own destiny instead of slaves of Jesus Christ. You see, we need need to get it. And so he puts the whole universe on notice. Notice verse 10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the church, through the church, to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. He says, look, even the angels and the demons are going to know who I am because of the way you respond to the gospel message. Isn't that crazy? That we, as the church, the angels and the demons are going, there's something crazy going on in that church. Have you looked at who's in that church? They should be hating each other, but they love each other. 
They shouldn't even be in the same room together. They're not only in the same room, they're inviting each other out to dinner. They're going, out, they're going on mission trips to go share the same gospel that saved them. The universe is on notice through the church doing what the church is supposed to do and being what it's supposed to be. Think about it for a second. If we, in fact, did put the world on notice by loving each other the way we ha- ourselves have been loved, can you imagine the impact and the force that that would have in our world? It'd solve virtually every problem that we face if people really lived gospel lives. And so he says, look, the wisdom of God is going to be made known by the church, even to angels and demons. Demons are afraid of a healthy church following Jesus. Can I just tell you that? Demons are put off by you walking with the Lord. That's why James said, if you resist the devil, he'll flee. Our problem is we don't do what we're supposed to do, and so we let the enemy into the camp. And now all of a sudden, it's like, wow, I don't know how we got so weak. Well, we got so weak because we started relying on our own power and our own strength, our own arm of flesh, and it cannot, as Scripture says, sustain you. And so he says, look, check out the church. You ever thought about the fact that the Lord builds his church out of saved sinners? Amen? Not a great plan for success if you're doing a business. Amen? Think about it. Well, I'm just going to go find the least qualified people who hate each other, and I'm going to give them something that they all need, and that'll draw them together. No, you're going to go find the most qualified people, the people who get along with each other. And the Lord says, look, I'm going to take crazy people who hate each other, and I'm going to put Jesus in their life. And that's going to make up the church. Check this out, though. The world has no answer for that. The world's got no answer for what the gospel does in our lives. They're, they're sitting there, well, you need to go see a shrink. You know, how many of you have heard, well, you know, religion is just a crutch. You heard that one, right? Well, you just go there because you're not strong enough to handle life on your own. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. I'm not. Freely admit it, I need Jesus. That makes all of you codependent, by the way. (laughs) We need Jesus. He's a secret ingredient to what the church is supposed to be. He says, according to the eternal purpose there in verse 11, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, there was an eternal purpose in what God did in creating us, creating you. And in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. That's how I have boldness and confidence. The words I'm speaking to you this morning, if I was to go to school to learn how to say these words, they would be hollow and powerless. But because they're truth and I believe them, because they have transformed my life and countless tens of thousands of people whom I know... I saw 500,000 kids come through the camp. I saw countless tens of thousands of kids' lives changed and transformed by Jesus Christ. It's true. It's not true because somebody told me it's true. It's true because I've witnessed it being true. And so when you think of that transformational power, 
we have boldness because of what Christ does in us. I mean, we are, we, this room is filled with a bunch of has-beens. Amen? Amen? Used to be drug dealers. Used to be thieves. Used to be liars. Used to be fornicators. Used to be idolaters. We are has-beens. You know what an expert is, right? That's a washed-up drip under pressure. An expert. We're all experts in something. And it's generally not good what we're experts in. And so the Lord puts his spirit in us, we get transformed and changed, and we now become the church, this living, breathing organism that the world cannot explain. And so he simply gives an open invitation. He says, look, just come to me. Take God up on that offer. You're going to suffer a little bit. You'll have some things that go on in your life that maybe you aren't going to understand. You may not know. And therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you. Notice the tribulation. He's in jail because of people that he wasn't even like, that he did not actually like previously. He was in prison for them because of the work that the Lord had done. And he says, which is for your glory. Those things that you're going through, they have a purpose. They're for the glory of God. The things that we go through as a church, they have a purpose. They're for the glory of God. Suffering does, in fact, bring glory to God. We start to live those lives that are just like the Lord Jesus, and all of a sudden, these amazing things that could not otherwise be done get done because of his power working in us, his power working through us, his power working out of us into the world around us. That is a crazy mystery, friends. And it's one that... I'm delighted to be a part of. You know, every day with Jesus is like this wonderful adventure. You just wake up and all of a sudden, really, Lord? You're going to send me, I'm going to do that? I never saw that coming. And all of a sudden, you look back on your life, well, I'm the least of the saints, but boy, has God been good. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for saving us. Lord, thank you for blessing us. Thank you for imparting your spirit to us. Lord, thank you for reaching down from heaven to this earth. Lord, to gather a group of people such as us into one place and give us a common bond of love and gentleness and fruitfulness. Lord, to make us meek and humble and then to go out into this world and use us for your glorious purposes. God, we we don't understand that. But we are sure grateful for it. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you'd call the lost as we close our time together. Lord, there may be some in this room that have never said yes to that still small voice that's crying out even right now, saying yes to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to receiving Uh, that free gift of salvation, to admitting that there are sinners that need a Savior. God, would you save those this morning? Lord, as we close, as the prayer team is available in the prayer room, Lord, I pray that your grace would save the lost. Lord, that you would bind us together as your church and that we would see great and glorious and wonderful things. Lord, that the demons would be amazed by what happens through the power of your people. 
as we go forth into our world for the cause of Christ. We bless you. We praise you. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus and God's people all said, Amen. Amen.